0: Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it. And not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the
1: senior director of ad monetization from Jam City, and he uses Iron platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue.
0: That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams.
1: Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com.
2: We all know it, mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With With incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsliers.com. Hey
3: everybody, what's up? We are doing Twig 113. Today we have myself, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, Mishka Katkoff, and in place of Eric Chris, we got the smarter Eric, Eric Sufert. <laughs> Welcome, Eric.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks for being here. Today, we're going to cover three articles first. MTG acquires Hutch, a leading developer and publisher of mobile racing games from the MTG website. Second, League of Legends Wild Rift expanded to Europe and other territories from PocketGamer.com. And finally, Zynga-owned Rollick acquires Onnect from Dev. Chef Game Studio for 6 million by Gamma Sutra. What's up? What's going on, guys? So, we got some audio issues today, right?
2: Yeah, I broke my microphone literally before we started recording this, but still, my sound is not as bad as Eric's because he's in Estonia, which is like a 100 miles south from here where I'm at, and he's he's like in some medieval village recording in a in a in a town which has the worst reception uh no big cars and no open carry so eric how are you doing there just feeling
1: a little bit like a fish out of water here man no open carry <laughs> what do people like, go- do for fun <laughs>
3: yeah. all right should we roll into update? <laughs> <laughs> let's just go with that <laughs>
0: uh yeah updates uh, the big one happened last night ea has overtaken take 2 at the home stretch pun intended and is now acquiring codemasters for 1.2 billion after agreeing to 970 million from take 2 so uh, that was the increased offer codemasters has been consolidating actually a lot of the say smaller racing uh, pc console games for years um, they had the acquisition of the former evolution studio that's motorstorm and drive club in 2016 And then Slightly Mad Studios, which is Project Cars, Fast and the Furious Crossroads in 2019. Um, So EA's public reasoning for this is they believe they will have synergy with their current racing brands with need for speed and real racing. Um, Big Dev Studio being Criterion. And because they can provide growth to Codemasters' existing franchises through analytics and live ops. I think, Joe, you had deeper insights here.
3: Not really. (laughs) Not a lot of deep deep insights. I think it's just... Kind of puzzling why this acquisition makes sense for EA. It definitely, in my opinion, makes a lot more sense with Take-Two. Just more strategic sense. There's more synergy. So I don't quite get this, but it does feel more like a block that kick sort of move where EA is just trying to block Codemasters from going to Take-Two. But I don't know. I, I think that from the people that I talk to, it seems like the main issue that they talk about when they talk talk about Codemaster is the ability to add live ops to, to their games and so that seems like the main synergy but in my opinion I think Take-Two needs to, to make a move on this because they, they need to step back up to the plate because I do think that a Rockstar plus Codemaster combination would be very very powerful so we'll see what happens but yeah I just don't I, I don't know unless I'm missing something if somebody out there knows something tell me why <laughs> not all the the marketing fluff and PR fluff that's going out there but really why does codemasters make sense with uh with ea I, I personally don't get it
1: yeah i don't i didn't i didn't understand this either i you know what i was thinking i was thinking that ea should have bought hutch right so MTG just bought hutch uh for a you know a, pr- a pretty um rich valuation but i mean ea ea is one of the few kind of large publishers on mobile that actually has shrunk relative to where they were pre-covid. Right? I mean they didn't uh execute uh kind of during this this sort of like covid free for all that all other mobile kind of publishers benefited from. My sense is that like you kind of having dug into EA a little bit recently uh just like sort of for personal research, what they what EA does is it's it's got you know, it's got these kind of like very siloed business units and I think you guys have talked about this at length and I probably can't add anything to to the sort of uh the, the, the dialogue on that front. But just like organizationally, it's very inimical to being like successful on mobile. I think what they, they, and they sort of like lack really strong, like kind of internal mobile publishing capabilities. What they should do is they should buy a, a mobile company to act as their sort of like hub on mobile, like make it EA mobile or something. Buy a company that's just very good at publishing and all the aspects of like operating live ops and running UA and just sort of like managing these mobile assets and make that the kind of like hub of all their activities on mobile, because like, it's just, it's, it's puzzling to me why they can't compete there. Or, I mean, they can compete, but they, you know, they're, they're not growing and they're sort of like stagnating um, and they're mostly doing that, you know, uh, through the star Wars property is my sense. I don't know. Like it just, this, this acquisition feels like they you know, in just the price tag on it, and the premium that they're paying over what Take-Two is offering it just feels like they're not even trying to compete on mobile anymore right? does anybody disagree with that cuz that's just like that my my take might not be very uh, informed here compared to i think what um, what Adam has said or actually Eric is the EA expert right no i no, i think
2: i think I, I would disagree i think they've been investing now into mobile especially with with uh with the new new head of mobile i think it's his name is Jeff Kaplan if i'm correct from from Big Fish Yeah, so so a lot of, like, what I'm hearing is that they've been investing, they're investing into new IPs, they're investing into new development, um, and as well as growing their existing ones. So I think it's just time will tell, but I wouldn't say that they're divesting or or not paying attention.
0: Yeah, but in this day and age is really focusing completely on new game development, the best way to do it, versus, say, picking up a company like what Eric just talked about, like Scopely, who understands how to publish games. Yeah,
2: of, yeah, but but so another thing that that has been going on in my so I I'm not sure, but this is what I'm hearing is that Superscale has been working a lot with EA. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, but again, Superscale offers a lot of uh, a lot of publishing uh, expertise, and the EA has the IP, so that might be something that they're looking at. Again, this is just just speculation, um, but it seems like they're investing more, in my view.
3: Yeah, the one thing that we hear over and over from about EA is they don't want to overpay right like yes they want to they, they want to pay a reasonable price for mobile so yeah that's that's why you know building organically and why some of the, those other deals out there that potentially might make sense you know i, I mean they, those deals have got to be accretive so that's, that's the
0: issue yeah they're gonna have to wait for all this covid froth to kind of wear down right
3: yeah
2: yeah, yeah. but we, we've been we've been speculating about this a lot i mean ea has the IPs. ea has I mean, it has fantastic IPs. It has strong game development power. It can throw a lot of people on a, on a title. They they have been you know weakish on when it comes to the mobile mobile publishing, if you will. They haven't been very, you know, good at growth other than just pumping up their IPs and teams have been kind of dispersed. And especially when I've been talking to some of their studios, it didn't seem that they were on par with their performance marketing or marketing know-how. It was kind of like, we make the games, the other guys market it, these other guys do this, and this guy does that. Uh, but especially since I'm, I'm hearing that they're, you know, first of all, hiring people for, for the company and... and, and you know, working with these third party publisher, publishing companies to help them out to modernize their performance. I think that that's a good news.
1: You got it, you got to. It. At some point you have to internalize that, right? Like in some in some point the expertise needs to be kind of first party. Um, I mean, you can rely on, you can rely on agencies for a lot um, but I don't think you fundamentally they can set the growth strategy, right? I just feel like if I was, you know in, in and what's, what's the big growth vector for EA? Is it kind of these like legacy companies and Codemasters is a quite old company, right? Um, there's, and it's based, you know, um, it's based like, it's based like 20 minutes from like Leamington spots in the middle of kind of the country. It's not, you know, there's, there's not, there's, that studio is not going to grow there. I mean, it's, it's got kind of, um, I don't know, it's just a legacy mindset, right? Like what, what's the growth factor for EA's mobile, uh, or is that, is that like a, is it, is it kind of like a foregone conclusion that mo- mobile is never really going to be, um, they sort of like growth opportunity and, and they're still kind of like very much focused on like console. Um, you know, uh, and desktop, and if that's the case, and fine, but it, I, I still wouldn't really understand the Codemasters acquisition if that was the case.
3: Yeah, I think one thing we might want to watch out for with EA is what happens to Network next year, and if the price becomes low enough, whether EA would make a move on Network. Uh all right, cool. So I think we wanted to talk about. So I actually expected Adam to talk about Cyberpunk, but then I forgot. That he- at Warner Brothers, and uh, so we won't talk about Cyberpunk. The things that I've been hearing, just, just <laughs> is that that there are problems, I guess, bugs on the console side. PC looks good. I mean, obviously, Metacritic's great. Uh, we'll have to get somebody to talk about Cyberpunk at some point. So hopefully, we, we get somebody on later
0: to talk about. Well, it. Like, I, I can talk about the publicly available stuff, right? But yeah, so I, I, we're, I, I, I. we're we're publishing Cyberpunk, so there's there's a lot of stuff there but yeah publicly there's been a ton of issues on console um i bought it on pc i'm really enjoying it i haven't run into too many bugs but i know plenty of people that have um there's a lot of really really funny ones so i would definitely take a look at some of the headlines on on cyberpunk and just a lot of these say physics issues happening there are pretty funny um but yeah no cyberpunk is having a a, tough launch other than the fact that they think they got the Metacritic they wanted by, you know, putting their PC foot forward instead of console foot forward.
3: Cool. One other update is that Zynga, as some folks know, has been raising a ton of money. So that brings their potential to buy an acquisition of $2 billion or higher. So there aren't a whole lot of targets out there. they are, in my opinion there can there's probably two companies they they can acquire and in related news eric kress and i did record a podcast with chris petrovic uh now to be clear he didn't say anything to us at all about who zynga would or could be acquiring but we did ask him for some names out uh, out there if we were guessing you would naturally think could it be tactile or reworks but too small based upon the amount of money that they're raising so zynga did raise again a ton of money they could also use equity so we're definitely in my opinion talking about two billion or higher which then would leave moon active or another name that's over two billion so i uh, if you want hints on this, I think you should watch this Chris Petrovic interview. We're going to release it this Thursday, so definitely listen to that. Nice. There
2: some hints. If, if you ping JK directly, he will release it tomorrow. If you ping him <laughs> on LinkedIn, just DM JK. Be like, hey man, release the episode, and he will release it.
3: <laughs> All right, Mishka, you got some updates.
2: Uh, not much, not much. I've been, mean, you know, apart from sorry for the uh, the sound quality being poor because I'm because I'm you know broke my microphone just a moment ago. I've been playing a game called Vigor. Have you guys tried it?
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: that, that's pretty <laughs> old, right? It was on Xbox a long time ago. Yep.
2: Yeah, so everybody's been playing it. Like this is this is new for me, so I just. I've been playing a lot of different shooter games, and now I've been playing Vigor on on Switch, and I'm kind of liking it. it it's a, it's a game from Boheme Interactive. Um, you know, the setting might be a little bit of a challenging for people from not from the north because it kind of takes place in this Norwegian post-apocalyptic '90s forest. So, not the most sexiest <laughs> Very setting. Very
1: specifically for '90s a game. forest. <laughs> like,
2: no, I mean it's like listen, if you want to be niche, this is exactly how you become niche. But anyway, it's a it's a it's a pretty interesting game because it's kind of like battle royale there's a lot of battle royale elements in the sense that it's a pvp everybody goes to arena it gets smaller but the interesting part is it's a scavenging game so you go in you pick up all kind of cool stuff and then if you get out alive you get back to your hut that looks like piece of shit like the worst cottage you've seen in your life like (laughs) it should be like populated by homeless people it looks scary (laughs) but then (laughs) <laughs> but, but, you know but then you're kind of and it's good that it's so it's so horrible because you're gathering all these little stuff and then you're like improving i'm like you know fixing up the walls of my little hut and then risking my life to just get a little bit better sofa but it's worth it it's- so much.
0: <laughs> Got to get the new wallpaper for your I, home by risking I get, your life. I
2: get headshot. <laughs> I get headshot for for a fucking chair. So this game is is hardcore. And um, and, you know, I I, I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I, I mean, I would say I like it. It's a it's an interesting take. I feel like I'm making progress in the game uh, compared to, you know, playing Call of Duty or the other type of Call of, other type of Battle Royale games, because I'm collecting something and I'm, I'm advancing them, you know, just try, it guys. You when you see the uh, the cottage, it's the worst cottage in your life. Like you want
0: to run out. <laughs> like when, the- one thing you should try though, uh, you should play Escape from Tarkov if you like Escape that design. Escape so, from Tarkov, PC only. He, he, you got to get it. But um, if you want to have like the most, like the highest tens- intensity game, yeah, Escape from Tarkov. Yeah.
3: See, I'm hey, born you in try US listening Australia, to our podcast every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> talking about these games from a while back. <laughs> Yeah.
0: I don't know.
2: I, I like. I, I looked at Tarkov. Like, listen, I'm I'm born from USSR. I've already escaped Tarkov. I don't need to play <laughs> that shit. Like, I, I, I,
0: I literally. But you're fine with the '90s forest.
2: <laughs> that's you know. I'll I'll risk my life for a chair. Like, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> okay. Do we going want to go to the news?
3: Yeah. Uh, okay. Sure. So starting the news, we're going to start with MTG acquires Hutch, a leading developer and publisher of mobile racing games. This was a press release from MTG's website, and they announced the formation of a new gaming holding company to hold three of their acquisitions, including InnoGames, Congregate, and now Hutch. And the new entity called GamingCo will be owned 77.35% by MTG and hutch was acquired for 275 million dollars in an upfront consideration although there is an option of substituting about 9 to 10 million of that by shares some notes on hutch is are that they make mobile racing games top three titles are f1 manager top drives and rebel racing they also have new titles planned for 2021 and 2022 uh, they have a staff of over 100 team members, of which 70 are devs. And Hutch generated $56.3 million in revenue and $14 million in EBITDA. So, not a whole lot to say here. I don't have a take on this besides more of the same that we've already covered the past two weeks when we talked about Embracer, talked about Stillfront, that sort of, you know, consolidator roll-up strategy. The big question, though, I have is for Mishka. Hutch, what happened to Glue? <laughs>
2: I, I don't know what happened to Glue Glue was just my guess, but I was constantly saying that that uh that I I mean I like Hutch. They I've met them in multiple different conferences. I actually visited the studio a couple of times. I think they're really nice people. Uh I really like their CEO, Sean Rutland. He's a you know fantastic person, fun to talk with. Uh their games, they look great. They've always looked great, even back when they did that forgot what the, what, the, what the game was, but it was that police car that you were driving and like with one thumb and you were crashing to to various obstacles like that was way way back. and since then they've been doing a lot of good looking games. but the thing is like performance wise, you know you could kind of say that they've been struggling. their latest game was I'm not sure if this is the latest one but rebel racing um it's kind of like kind of like need for speed. But that game didn't do too well. Their Formula One manager, I think they bet a lot on on that game. That didn't too well, and and in fact, like their top game has been top drives. And when you look at how that game looks compared to all their other games, that's not even their best looking game. And it's sort of like a management game, not even a racing game. And that game has actually been the only one that that has revenue per download that looks promising. Everything else is kind of like a lot of installs and not a lot of revenue coming in. And I was looking at the uh the racing market and I have to god damn it I hate saying this but Crest was right. So so <laughs> I pulled pulled my data. So last time I was looking at at Sensor Tower's blog and now I pulled a lot of data from Sensor Tower and I was looking at the uh the arcade racing subgenre as well as realistic racing and of course arcade racing is the one where Super Mario Kart Release so you have this massive bump on the third quarter of last year but since then it kind of fizzles down and and is you know slowish and when when i look at the uh the real, realistic racing where all the hutches games are that's not you know massively growing category it grew during the covid bump by about 25 percent, but that's pretty much on the low end of what the what the subgenres grew so it's not that promising genre, as I was saying previously. So Eric, you were right, I was wrong. So I was kind of thinking like, why did this deal happen? And and what is really driving MTG? Because I'm not too familiar. And I was like scorching through various data trying to understand this. And I went to MTG's page and I looked at their ownership. And when you look at the ownership, like the top five ownership of the company when it comes to shares, you know, Swedbank, just normal bank, is the biggest owner. But the second one is active ownership capital, which I believe is private equity. You have ever more global advisors. Again, I think this is this is a private equity company. Then you got Nordia Funds, a big Nordic bank, and then Lanabo Fund. So out of the five big owners, they have, I believe now three private equities already inside the ownership. So what this tell me is that MTG sees something valuable. In, in the company and if you consider how private equity companies work i mean they they usually have a pretty clear and pretty strong strategy before they acquire something that like, i don't know if this is how they view hutch or this is, this is just something how they viewed mTg and they've been running the turnaround for the company but i think that's really what's what's kind of behind behind this push is that they have a uh, some kind of an active strategy to make hutch into a much more um, well, basically to, for Hutch to realize its potential. Because again, if you look at the games, they look really good. If you look at the category, they're not performing as the top of the of, of the com- competitors. And they're even not performing nearly as well as some of the old titles like Real Racing or Need for Speed. And then when you look at their um, racing management games, they're pretty much on top. But for somewhat reason, they haven't realized the potential with Formula One Manager, which is essentially the same game as Top Drives that was actually – Performing the best in the company's portfolio, so I think they see something that that um, that they can
1: turn around this into, uh, into
2: a story. So that's my analysis.
1: Yeah, MTG is an interesting company because um, you know it was they basically owned a lot of like uh, legacy media and communications infrastructure. Like I think they owned they had some massive telecoms or maybe TV station holdings in Africa. Um, a lot of their management team was kind of uh, comes comes from like sort of like legacy media world, but they've really sort of transformed recently. Uh, they brought in a lot of like kind of new media execs. Um, I think they've got a really awesome idea, uh, eye for acquisitions. I think this will probably end up being a really great acquisition for them. Um, and I, I mean I, I know that the the private equity funds that are are invested in, in mtg are are like let's uh, say so they have like very strong transparency there and and they kind of have like kind of kind of active uh, presence. Um, but I, I feel like you know this, and you know, I, I wrote about this for the DOF you know, blog however many months ago that like COVID, uh IDFA is, is kicking off like this uh this sort of tidal wave of MA and consolidation. You have this kind of layer of companies that just generates kind of fairly consistent solid cash flow. A lot of times it's like legacy titles, um, and and you know, can be picked up and you know almost like in a sort of arbitrage deliver just like meaningful value to the acquire on the basis of like the, the, the multiple uh, uh, valuation, right? Like MTG is listed on a Swedish stock exchange. They buy this cash flow and they instantly get a profit on it just from the valuation bump. So um, I think, in still front is very similar. So I think like you're just seeing a lot of this consolidation happen with this kind of layer of like the sort of, I don't want to say tier two and tier three, but like the companies that aren't like kind of consistently top, 2550 grossing, but like still drive meaningful revenue and have low OPEX, right? They're, they're not based in San Francisco. They didn't raise a ton of money um, and they don't need to, to sort of, uh, you know, generate these like, like massive outsized returns to make everybody happy. There's a lot of activity going on in that space right now.
0: Adam? i want you to move mm-hmm. on. Yep. Let's talk about League of Legends, Wild Rift. Um, so they have now opened up to more countries in open beta on December 10th. Um, that doesn't mean North America yet, but uh, I think it included Europe, Middle East, North Africa. Um, a refresher on Wild Rift, this is a whole new game, new economy, specifically built for mobile slash console. Um, overall, I'm more bullish on a, say, Fortnite-style cross-play model than I am for a complete reset, but I know here that there's you know substantial um, blockers for Riot to actually provide a cross-play mobile. And I think in general, you could probably provide much more value with the synergy across platform than you can for asking players to pick one platform or another. Um, but I, I, I'm assuming, you know, Riot was pretty tied down to a reset here. That being said, you know, they've done a great job of rebuilding the League of Legends experience for mobile. Um, it is a complex virtual pad controller, right? Um, more similar to Call of Duty mobile and, I think for them to, it was a chance for them to build a very mobile optimized game economy and even live content model. Um, So some of the high level differences, we're talking about 15 minute battles, smaller bases um, and they've removed some mechanics for simplicity but the majority actually is intact. So the big question I think on everybody's mind here is can it succeed in the West where pretty much every attempt at a MOBA has failed um, big ones being Arena of Valor, just does not have any traction in the West and Vainglory. So overall, I'm skeptical here. Um, I don't know riots or say the market's expectations, but I've heard they are incredibly large. Um, so I'm not expecting a massive Western success. It's going to be likely a slow and grow depending on their live content and operations. But I'm also gonna play a bit of a devil's ad- advocate here because I've also heard the complete opposite. that a lot of colleagues are thinking this will crash and burn in the West. Um, mainly thinking about the comps of MOBAs that have failed. Um, my comps for this are more Call of Duty mobile and PUBG mobile in the West than Vainglory Mobile Legends and Arena of Valor. Because I just do not believe that there's been a you know a successful big IP high execution western focused MOBA to drive that comp. Like Vainglory was a polished product and It just was too simple. So throwing Wild Rift into that same pile is the same thing as throwing Call of Duty into the same pile as the respawnables and a bunch of the other attempts at (laughs) PVP shooters. And I think Arena Valor Mobile Legends are are good comps for what can happen, but those are pretty Asian optimized games with no focus on the West or a Western IP. So I think assuming that Arena Arena Valor got no traction and thus League of Legends will not is the same thing as saying PUBG Mobile uh, wasn't as strong in the West so that Call of Duty Mobile can't have a chance. So I think League of Legends IP overall is still massive and their total addressable market is large. They have a ton of players that play every day and they still have a ton of players that used to play. This likely will not pull PC League of Legends players to mobile. It will reactivate you know, the millions of players that have lapsed from League of Legends PC um, and push them to play on other devices. So in terms of getting the DAU and sustaining it, I have faith that this will be the best performing MOBA in the West. Where I have less faith in is Riot's ability to say monetize and operate effectively on mobile, um, mainly looking at team fight tactics. It's still a desert for content and cosmetics and Wild Rift just simply cannot operate this way. Um, so it's still in beta but the amount of content in the game is still very low, especially things like hero selection. It seems like they're trying to hold some of the stuff back maybe to you know give them some re-engagement content post-launch, sure. Um, but overall, though execution looks great, I'm excited to play, and I think Riot is smart to really slow down the launch of this game. I don't think there's a lot to gain by doing some massive big launch that just burns your golden cohort like Call of Duty Mobile did. Instead, to slowly roll it out, build up your live operations pipeline, and make sure that your golden cohort have plenty to engage with and spend on for day one that's my notes mm. so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna support
2: you a lot on this adam um i haven't personally played wild rift but i've been playing mobas on mobile since discord was known as hammer and chisel and had a game called fates forever so i have pretty much played all of them and this is actually something uh this topic we actually discussed this even with Paul on, on Deconstructor Fun Slack channel, kind of throwing some some shade on this game. And the thing is, like, I just don't see MOBAs as a popular genre in the West. Uh, as you mentioned, Adam, there might not be uh, that perfect type of MOBA in the West. But listen, Arena Valor launched with Superman, Joker, and Catwoman. They had all the IPs put in into that game to make it more appealing within the West. Uh, they had all the power, all the influencers, everything lined up like endless resources lined up to to make this game good and and it has a lot of fans a lot of developers are still playing it in the studios but those are pretty much that and of course jk is playing arena valor uh i don't know why but but that's your favorite game then then we look at the uh, the mobile legends uh, mobile legends bang bang as it was known it had like 205 million uh revenue last year with with 100 million installs arena valor 80 million uh installs with 30 million revenue Sorry, 80 million revenue with 30 million installs. And this has taken away South Korea, Japan, and China, because most of the revenue is coming out of those countries. And the third largest, so I mentioned Arena Valor and Mobile Legend, but the third largest MOBA on the market is called Heroes Evolved. Uh, Last year... No, over its lifetime, it did 14 million installs. It was launched in 2017, and it had about 12 million in net revenue, so not looking too great. Uh, the other fact why I don't think that these games are performing that well is because less than 15% of the revenue is coming from US. Majority of the revenue is coming from Southeast Asia, as well as the, uh, the, the top Asian countries, Korea, Japan, and China. And Vainglory, as as you mentioned, is a good example. That got a tremendous push in the West. Like Apple did everything. Like that's 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 Vainglory is probably the game that Apple has been helping the most. And that game got twenty two million installs and pretty much thirty million in net revenue over its lifetime. So yeah. But all right, let's take a step back and look at how Wild Rift can become big. And it's really, if it can connect with lapsed League of Legends players, so that there's millions on, on millions of those. If it if it can cater to the current players, I don't know if they're looking for a different type of gameplay, uh, maybe a restart and kind of feeling more powerful, it could be good for those. Um, they have to cater to their community, which Riot is always excellent at doing. Uh, they have to cater to the esports, as as with any MOBA, it has to be fair. It has to be uh, the type of game that people are eager to stream, um, and it has to basically win for Mobile Legends in the Western audience in in the Western markets, uh, which is going to be tough. As well as it has to launch in China, and that can take up to two years before it has a chance to launch there. So, can Riot do this? Can Riot, you know? connect with the labs, with the current players, build the esports, build the community. Of course it can. I mean, theoretically, yes, they have all the resources, but in practice, Adam, just like you mentioned, they have two mobile titles, Teamfight tactics and legends of Runeterra. And I've been playing both and they're both like extremely high quality games, very well done, very engaging even for people who are not big fans of League of Legends. But when I look at the performance of these games, especially the downloads, they don't look that crazy. I mean, Teamfight Tactics, with all the characters, did about 14 million installs to date, and has done about 10 million in revenue, net revenue, according to Sensor Tower. And Legends of Terra, another beautiful game with all the League of Legends assets, has done again about 12 million in installs and less than 8 million in net revenue. Those are really small numbers for that amazing IP. So when people are saying like well now we have League of Legends on mobile, it's like we we had those characters. We had them in different type of game modes and I don't see, you know, I don't see Mario Kart numbers when it comes to installs. Despite those games being really great and despite them probably resonating really really well with both current and lapsed players and they are actually cross platform. So I just, I don't, I don't understand the hype. I do, but I don't. When I look at the numbers, I just don't understand the hype.
3: Yeah, I think I've got I, Eric Kress and I have a bet on the first year revenue for League of Legends. I've got like a crazy aggressive <laughs> number. Out there. I forgot what it was, but it was really crazy. Uh, but I'm more optimistic just because I think to your point about the other games, I, the those other games don't have a the monetization model for those games is not not that the monetization from a free to play perspective is like great in terms of payment optimization but it's it's a more proven model now we'll see what happens but i don't know i do think there's a chance for this game to do pretty well we'll we'll see what happens but what, I, I, what's your
2: I, what's your net revenue number like in a year, I,
3: it was crazy. I, it was like it. But give I, me a new one. Give me a new based on based on all
2: these all the shade that I just threw. What's your What's your expectation? I, I think
3: I think I said like fifty million with with fifty. I think that yeah, it was a, it was a pretty aggressive number.
2: Well, that's not crazy, Adam. What do you think?
3: Well, because like AOV is like three million, uh, and I I think at the I initially, initially no AOV made like thirty in, in U.S. only U.S. only. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's very aggressive.
2: <laughs> yeah. JK, you're crazy. Adam Adam, what are you thinking that this game can make in in a, in a year, excluding
0: South Korea and Japan? I would want to actually do the <laughs> spreadsheet math on that because I'm definitely not agreeing with Joe on 50 million US only. but at the same time,
3: <laughs> I'm saying that's I, I, but
0: I need to see the comps. I need to put together the research, right? Like, I, there's no good. way I can give it back. Of that just
3: circle back with Eric Kress and, and yeah. kind of make some predictions uh, after yeah. the new year.
2: Joe Joe is a riot shill, so we can't really ask him. <laughs> but
1: Adam, you you think Vanguard didn't work because it was too simple? Yeah, yeah. No, it was really difficult. Eric played Right Vainglory for like two years, right? Longer, but I my sense was that it was just too hard. It, I mean, it was yeah. too complex for the mobile gaming audience that it, like thematically was trying to reach. and But also like the, the mobile audience, will, will they shift their habits to mobile? Because if they won't, then it was way too complex. And if they will, then yeah, it was probably too simple.
2: Yeah, but Vainglory had other, other issues. Like for example, they didn't adopt joysticks until... Everybody had joysticks. They were three versus three while everybody was doing five versus five. Um, You know, not going into the style and marketability of that style. I have no clue about that. But product-wise, they weren't keeping up to par to the competitors. And they were very much focusing on that precision touch control kind of like just like you would do with clicks when you're playing the game but that's that's almost like doing an ipad first game where you where you would be Mm -hmm. playing with two fingers like this and everybody then and the market really shifted as the game was being developed and as it launched the market pretty much shifted 100 to mobile devices instead of ipads but they still had the uh, the, the, the wrong control scheme and did not invest into five versus five until it was too late so they also had some mistakes on the product side
0: yeah. yeah. So so if you think about the complexity of, of Vainglory versus PC League of Legends, right? Wild Rift sits somewhere in between those two. And if you look at what it took on PvP shooters to actually get to the point that they've been successful, right, yeah. it's been to to match pretty well the complexity that's on PC and console, right? you need to be able to like lift up the aim. You need to go have all oh, those God. controls there. So issue, yeah, it's it's like even Vainglory was substantially more complex than most mobile games, right? Like we're not right. even like Brawl Stars is significantly simpler, right? Yeah. But when you compare it against what the feature set MOBAs need in order to actually sustain yeah. engagement, it needed more mechanics.
3: Yeah, the, uh, the other thing to consider with MOBAs is just the operating cost, right? Because it used to be, now at least during the time of Vainglory, that from a netcode perspective, that uh, just to operate the game was was a pretty big part of the operating margin, but now you've got newer technologies and things like that to potentially reduce your overall operating costs for a game like like a MOBA. So,
1: well, what's so expensive to 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 operate?
3: Well, in terms of being server authoritative and having a higher like you know server costs to operate the game. And so now there are approaches that are from a netcode perspective that are more like client deterministic, uh kind of more GGPO style for for that kind of game mm-hmm. where you could potentially significantly reduce the operating costs. Shout
2: out to GameMaker's YouTube video. <laughs> he has been learning. I've been I've been I've been watching JK's YouTube. <laughs> I know what's up. <laughs> that was actually one of the one of the episodes, right? Where you did with your CTO and some other folks. Yeah. Yeah. No, good stuff. Yeah, do we do we want to move on to the uh, last piece of news? Let's do it. All right, let's talk about Rolic and Zynga's Rolic is now, which was acquired just recently, I think in Q two, has acquired uh, a game called Anect. So Rolik is the owner of matching game Anect, following a six million dollar deal with the casual game developers Chef Game Studio. Rolic was already partner over owner and publisher of Anect. This latest buy means that Rolik will helm development moving forward and count the title among its own game portfolio. The sale also includes potential future payment of $1 million to Chef Game Studio if certain terms and conditions are met down the line. So what is Rolik? Rolik is, according to the data uh, that I have, it's the uh, 10th largest hyper-casual publisher when it comes to downloads. Grew quite significantly during last year, about 915%, uh, but that's not even even the... uh, the craziest uh, growth number. But anyway, back in August, uh, Rolik was bought for $167 million, which is according to Zynga's statement at the time, aimed to help it expand into hyper casual category. And Rolik has been on a pretty much, well, a little bit of a roller coaster of downloads, which is the lifeblood of hyper casual games. For example, in May, it hit the top, doubled the installs by pushing Repair Master and likely to boost the MA talk. And then they had a couple other games that they boosted afterwards. But those are not as important as Onyx. And I actually pulled some data and looked at Onyx. It looks like um like sort of a hyper-casual m- matching game, not the typical match-three type of game. I looked at the downloads. It's it's about uh, 500,000 downloads a, a, a a day or a week anyway so download peak went by already in february and march and the game has been actually declining quite a bit it's by far the most downloaded game that rolic has in its portfolio at uh, 36 million downloads at the moment and only about a million in revenue so clearly very ad driven game and clearly quite hyper casual game with some in-app purchase uh, monetization and It's clearly acquired because it brings 75% of all in-app purchase, uh, all of Rolex in-app purchases and 17% of all the uh, installs. And it's sustaining at least better than all the other hyper-casual games. Now, the issue that I see in this is that unlike many hyper-casual publishers, they don't own their games, they just publish them. So the way I kind of see it is that they have to almost grossly overpay to keep to keep the games that they published, and seven million for this game that looks to be made in about two months, and then Rolic also spent likely quite heavily to scale up this game, and it's actually on the decline. It sounds like a, it doesn't sound like a good deal. Of course, I could be I probably very wrong on this, but at least when looking at the charts, it doesn't you know it doesn't look like this is a game that they're acquiring and it's going to grow just like Zynga acquired Gram or other companies. It seems like this game is just. They need it in this in their portfolio so the question kind of rises like what did zynga really buy for that 167 million um is it like a small team of ua professionals i mean rolic doesn't clearly own the games it publishes and it doesn't seem to have those very favorable contracts if they have to pay so much for a game that they already scaled up and, and, you know, I haven't seen these type of deals happen in hyper casual. Again, I don't know the business to, to that of a detail, but this sounds weird. And I have to say that I'm a big fan of Zinga strategy and their turnaround story led by Frank and his team. Uh, the Graham deal was was clearly a steal. The small giant, I mean, it was a super expensive deal, but they got some serious top of the line from that and and really grew the company significantly. And if, if, uh, if, if, small giant launches puzzle combat and does well, then that deal becomes, you know, among the best that they've done. Uh Peak Games seems to be a very, very expensive, uh t- you know, aqu- acquisition and hasn't been really growing, but I think they bought it for the stability. And now Rolik, you know, without investing more into acquiring these assets, this deal can be a massive miss. So I think Zynga is doing good by by acquiring these top performing games into the role portfolio, rather uh, rather than kind of seeing it fizzle. So what what do you think, Gary?
1: I didn't understand this acquisition. Um, just given given the IDFA environment, I didn't understand this. I mean, I think hyper casual, and I mean, this is from the hyper casual, you know, kind of companies I've spoken with. The expectation is that CPMs are gonna drop, you know, in the ballpark of 30 to 50%. Hyper casual uh, CPMs are just, Generally, a function of the ability to target people within the games, right? And like that, just completely goes away. They're going to see a pretty massive, uh, kind of, um, you know, substantial uh, decrease, uh, and and that's that, and that's just gonna that that directly impacts the revenue. I mean, there's just no way to sort of offset that. I also, I mean, I, I also just for the same reason, you know, that you you noted, let uh, I me mean, see, the, they're a publisher, right? So you're you're, you're getting a lot of publishing uh, expertise, um, uh, and and maybe that's helpful for in in other ways. I think my sense was that. Yeah, and, and far be it for me to criticize Zynga acquisition strategy because they've done an awesome job. I think Small Giant was a brilliant acquisition. Uh, Graham was a brilliant acquisition. Um, my sense is that this was just like a misfire. This was just uh, they they have money to spend. They saw this ascendant company. Um, they've been you know driving a lot of kind of uh, uh, market cap uh, increases through acquisitions, and they just saw okay, we're not in hyper casual. We could, we should expand there. Um, you know, I don't think the the, the cross uh, promotion argument is a hard one to make cross promotion is really hard to get right you can't just start throwing up ads in your games and expect those to convert you need a lot of like kind of smart technology behind that and even then the conversion rates are very low um so if you think about that dau base yeah they're going to have and i I did notice that um uh zynga has taken the rollick games under its own label so they are kind of getting those IDFBs now um like i just saw that they published tangle master 3d under zynga which was a rollick game so they are getting the idea of using, they are collecting that data, they are building user profiles, but that's hard to spin up from zero. And my sense is that Zynga also doesn't really have that core like sort of centralized publishing ex- expertise. They haven't really built that out. I mean, they they left the the public the acquired studios to their own devices, largely um, totally independent, right? So I, that acquisition, I don't understand it. This this Onic one, I think that feels like more just a talent acquisition, right? It was pretty it's pretty late, low dollar what i think is pretty amazing out of all this is the explosive growth of uh istanbul's game development ecosystem which is it's like basically i think r- rivals helsinki now for like you know in terms of just mobile games uh and mobile games publishers You get peak um you know which spun off a couple of uh you know startups that the the one just got announced they're like massive seed round i can't remember the name bigger, um but that was bigger games was it that's yeah, right, bigger. yeah, and that was super. That was super, competitive. super competitive, Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, you've got,
2: you've got, go ahead. Go uh,
1: on, you've got you know Rolic, uh, you know Graham. Um, so there's there's a pretty massive community there, and outside of Istanbul too. There's a couple others um, like in Ankara, but it's it's pretty impressive what what's happened in Istanbul with mobile gaming and especially hyper casual gaming.
3: Hey Eric, so a lot of the Zynga management like Frank and others have been talking about, they've been saying IDFV without saying IDFV. Can you comment just in terms of like, will it matter? Or what's the current outlook in terms of how impactful IDFV would be? And does that justify the Rollick acquisition or not?
1: I, I don't think it does. I mean, I don't, cause it, yeah, you, you can have an IDFV and you could potentially build a user profile with that, that kind of anchors your sort of understanding of who that user is across your apps. But that's really only good for cross promotion. Right. And, and doing some kind of like profiling in terms of like, well, who's this person where they like gathering data on their behavior and then potentially using that for like personalization. So like, you know, you might personalize the game that they're in based on like what, you know, they've done in the past and just sort of, um, get to that lTV quicker or potentially increase the lTV based on just you know sort of optimizing that kind of the, the journey for them. but i don't know how you justify that big of a number. i feel like they were just in acquisition mode they saw this ascendant company. Um, my sense is that the the acquisition talk started before the idfa thing was announced because I remember it was like they announced they announced the acquisition right after idfa was announced. i, I just my sense is that this was just a misfire they, they had the momentum going you know in, you know when you're in deal making mode, no one ever wants to kill a deal. Like everyone's got like deal fever. They want to get it done. And I feel like they were at the finish line when the IDFA stuff got announced and somehow they convinced themselves that it didn't matter. And and I think it very much does matter.
2: Right. Yeah. I I have to, I have to kind of pile up a little bit on what Eric said is like one thing that is interesting is in a lot of like Zynga communication when it comes to their executives, they're still talking about, you know, hyper casuals, how they see this as a stable market kind of, you know, almost puffing it up and and making it, you know, positive story around it because there's so many question marks. So, I, you know, it, for me, it just kind of like bells ring when executives are talking too much about it. They don't talk that much about their other acquisitions. So it's it's kind of like you know explaining to the market like no 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 this makes sense. Like look at all the angles. There's so many angles how this makes sense. And when I look at these numbers, especially this latest deal, I feel like. They're doing the right thing by by acquiring assets into the Rolic, but without these type of moves, I think I don't know. Just based on the number, it doesn't look like like it it was like it was a frosty move during frosty times.
1: Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the stock too, I mean, like uh, year to date, it's it's up, right? I mean, started the year at six fifty, now it's eight ninety, right? You think, wow, that's amazing. Uh, Six months is down, right? Started the last six months at nine oh five, and it was into the tens, or it was yeah, it was over ten. Um, And it's kind of been on a a sort of decline, uh, basically, since the IDFA announcement, right, which happened in June. So uh, my sense is that, you know, there's small, I mean, I I probably field one phone call a week, uh, you know, through these expert networks asking about Zynga, like what's going on with the IDFA, then the the sort of like market is starting to realize the impact that this is going to have. Whereas when this was first announced, like no one knew what the hell it meant, right? Um, And then, you know, you had the ad tech companies piling with all this like false info, just to sort of distract people. So I think now people are starting to recognize, well, okay, this is actually like uh, gonna be pretty damaging in general, but especially for a hyper-casual studio that just got bought for a hundred plus million. Yeah
3: Actually, maybe we could end with Eric, what's your outlook for hyper-casual? Because sometimes I'll just repeat your, what what I think is was your thesis around hyper-casual and <laughs> I'm just the messenger, but people, it does seem like a sensitive topic. So what what's your current outlook on hyper-casual for 2021?
2: Eric, he just, he wants you to dunk. Like, this is it. He just threw the ball and he's not doing it himself. I can, I can, you know, the way JK is smiling, he's like, Eric, you dunk.
1: (laughs) He's like, um, you know, I'll pass. I'll I'll, I'll do the windmill here. Uh, (laughs) No, I I don't know. I, 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 my sense is that there's like, just no, there's nothing positive here, right? If you see a collapse of CPMs between 30 and 50%, I mean, that's just, that's 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 devastating for your business, right? Now, I mean, a lot of the hyper-casual studios basically generate all of their installs for free or like some substantive portion of their installs for free. And so it's like, well, okay, they're not spending that much, but a lot of hyper-casual companies do. Um, and, you know, you can you can make the argument, well, you know, the CPMs drop and so the acquisition prices drop, right? But the, there's a disproportionality to that with hyper-casual because hyper-casual is basically only monetized by selling whales, right? By, by letting people find... The IDFAs of Wales in their games and selling them for very cheap in a non-competitive pool of impressions. Talk to any UA person and say, What do you do when you find out that one of Voodoo's uh, games just launched and is climbing the charts? You blacklist it. You call up every single rep you have at the video networks, you say blacklist this game, it's worthless traffic. Um, and and so I think like you just there's a disproportionality to the to the uh, uh, acquisition costs. And the monetization potential with hyper casual. And so you don't get that like, well, it's going down, but it's going down on both sides. And so we're still gonna make margin. Um, I, my sense is that it's gonna be very bad for hyper casual. You're gonna see a lot of consolidation in, in that uh segment, or just a lot of companies kind of dying off. All
3: right, well, there you have it, Eric's outlook for hyper casual for 2021. Any other comments or are we done?
2: Oh, I wanna I'll give, i give want to give a shout out to you, JK. So I actually listened again to your episode of product implication of IDFA, which you do, which you did with Andrew Cohen and Nicholas Herriger. So Andrew Cohen is with Tilting Point, head of data science, and Nicholas Herrick was the founder of Eight Bit Coaching. I think that one is really good because you drive on, like you you focus on on the product side of thing, and that's I'm I'm using it as a background for for more questions to Eric for the next growth trigger. So I think that episode product implication of IDFA is really good. And I suggest everybody oh, to listen to okay. it. If you have listened to it once, go again and listen, listen to it again. I did that.
3: Awesome. All right. Well I think that's it, guys. See y'all later. Bye.
1: Bye. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye.